The year was 1981, and the, the place was the Indiana State Penitentiary. And the writer who records this incident began with these words. After speaking to more than 200 inmates in the auditorium for a prison fellowship seminar, I asked the warden to let us visit death row. I knew things were tense there because Stephen Judy had just been executed by electrocution. But I wanted to see two Christian inmates with whom I'd been corresponding regularly. The warden agreed and invited a group of our volunteers to come along as well. So about 20 of us made our way through the maze of concrete cell blocks to the double set of barred doors that led into the most despairing of all places, death row. The end of the line where men live for years, from appeal to appeal, the only way out is either a new trial or execution. The warden opened the individual cell doors, and one by one, the men drifted out slowly mixing with our volunteers and gathering in a circle on the walkway. I was especially glad to meet Richard Moore, whose wife had written me such moving letters, as well as James Brewer, a young black man who, though seriously ill with a kidney disease, was a powerful witness to the others on death row. Whether his death would come swiftly by way of thousands of volts of electricity or slowly by uremic poisoning, James was at perfect peace with God, and his warm smile showed it. Nancy Honeytree, the talented gospel singer who often goes with us into the prisons, played her guitar and sang a few songs. I spoke briefly. Then we all joined hands, and together we sang Amazing Grace. Nowhere do the words of that hymn have richer meaning than among a group of society's despised outcasts condemned to die for the most awful of crimes. This morning, I, am, I didn't mean to do this, but I want to sort of preach a part two of last week's message. And last week's message was basically an uh, unpacking of, the, uh, of Acts chapter 26, verse 18. And we were talking about our place in this world as Christians and how God has called us to be his witnesses and to give testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done in our lives by the work of his spirit within us. And that verse that we looked at and unpacked last week goes like this. Paul said, what Christ told me to do was this very thing, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith 
in me. And so we talked about that great passage of Scripture and its ramifications last week, that as his witnesses, we are called to nothing less. Now, we may not travel the seas and voyage to other continents. We may not be beaten, stoned, and persecuted and imprisoned as the Apostle Paul was, but the message itself has never changed, has it? The gospel, Jesus said, this gospel must be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. And so we have this task right here in Northeast Washington, just like the church does throughout the world, to be his representatives and to testify to others about the grace of God in our lives and how he has changed us through faith in Jesus Christ. As we come this morning to the passage that I want us to be thinking about, I was, uh, I was chuckling to myself as I pulled up the picture again this week, and uh, Robbie Fisher's not here this morning, but uh, Robbie sent me a little clip, you know, and Robbie's been a weightlifter for many years. He's part of our church family, and his daughter had a, a baby shower here yesterday, and they have family, so maybe that's why they're all together at home. But uh, Robbie sent me this little clip, and, and you have to know about Robbie. Robbie had a leg amputated just below the knee, and so he has a prosthetic leg, but he still refuses to give up the weightlifting because it's part of his uh, regimen. It's what he does. He lives for it. And um, so he sent me this little clip, and it was a picture of him bending down, taking a hold of the barbells, and then squatting down and lifting them. And he sent me a little note saying, isn't that something? 455 pounds. Now that is some heavy lifting when you consider how much weight is on the end of that bone that locks into that prosthetic. That's an enormous amount of weight. And um, I'm not going to go try that anytime soon. <laughs> heavy lifting. Well, we have this commission. Open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among all those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's our message, and that's what we're called to faithfully share as we live out our Christian lives as we go. Now, that's our task. But I find, and I'm sure as you do, as far as the saving of a soul, as far as the opening of those eyes, as far as delivering someone spiritually from the dominion of Satan to God, as far as the forgiving of their sins, and as far as the depositing in their account an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will never pass away in heaven for them, and to sanctify them through faith. All of those things that God promises to do, those, all of those consist of heavy lifting, which I cannot do. Can you do that for anyone? No. Now, you can share the message. You can live the life 
You can show acts of goodness and kindness and thoughtfulness. You can be the kind of believer you should be and open your mouth and don't be silenced when the Lord gives you an opportunity. But ultimately, we cannot transform anybody. That's a heavy lifting that only God himself can do. And I bring this because that's the balance that we need. Where is our confidence? Did you know that for years now, not only have I practiced this myself, but I've taught all of our interns now. I don't know how many. We, this church probably doesn't realize that before we ever moved to Kettle Falls, we had interns at other churches as well. So I don't know. We've had about a dozen or so that we have trained and prepared for ministry. But I've taught them all a practice that I do. That is, when I've studied the Word, and I've prayed over the Word, and I've asked the Lord to fill my bag of seeds so that I can come and sling the Word of God, the seed of the Word, to you and for your hearts, when I've done everything I can, then I come with no confidence in what I can do or my preparation. It won't do it. If the Holy Spirit himself does not take the word of God and open it to your understanding and to your heart and mind, it's just an exercise in information and there will be no real lasting change in your heart or your life or in mine. Do you, do you believe that? That's our conviction that it is the Spirit of God himself who has come as Jesus promised and he is the one who does the heavy lifting. Well, today we're looking at uh, John chapter 16. We've been to these verses so many times. These verses from, that run from chapter 13 through 17 are some of my favorite in all the world. I suppose if I were to look at some of you that have known the Lord some time, I have a hunch that that part of your Bible is more worn than other parts because that's that last evening Jesus spent with his own before he went to the cross. And it is rich with teaching for the disciples and for those called to be his witnesses. It's a beautiful section of scripture and part of what makes it so amazing is that this is on the eve of the cross and the suffering of Christ, it's on the eve of that that he pours all of this attention and concern into his followers. Well, in chapter 16, it takes up where Terry, Pastor Terry, left off in his reading. And I want you to follow with me, beginning at verse 1. And the first thing we see regarding the work of the Helper, the Holy Spirit, in our lives is that we can be sure that as we are faithful to the Lord, there is going to be a clash. There is going to be a collision of sorts. There is going to be some level of conflict. That's the nature of this battle in this world between light and darkness and the dominion of Satan and God. So in verse 1, Jesus tells them, these things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. And these things they will do. 
because they have not known the Father or me. Verse 4, But these things I've spoken to you, that when that hour comes, you will remember that I told you of them, and these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. So the Lord knew that when he would finish the work of salvation on the cross, be buried for three days and rise again and then finish up with some further instruction for 40 days with the disciples that he was going to leave them. And he had told them he was going to leave them. And in leaving them, they would not have his immediate presence bodily to protect them, watch over them, to guide them, and so on. And so they are troubled about that. But he wants to warn them that as you're faithful to me and you take this message out, it's going to cause tension because of the condition of man in his fallen state. The second thing here, and I, I, we're just working through the chapter, and then we're going to back up to the verses that we want to concentrate on. In verse 5 through 7, we have the Holy Spirit providing comfort. Look at verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So here the Lord says this astonishing thing to them. Their hearts are filled with sorrow. They've, they've put all of their stock in him for the past several years. And now he's telling them, right at what they think is building to the height of his influence, Tens of thousands have been healed. All of these amazing things that they have seen and they're ready for the next stage and then he drops this bomb on them. I'm leaving. No wonder their hearts are filled with sorrow. And yet he says to them this staggering thing. Listen guys, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I do not go away, the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But he will after I am glorified. And so here is this comforting news of the Holy Spirit who would come and abide with them, even indwell them. And then in verse 8 through verse, um, verse uh, 11 or so, let's see, yeah, verse 8. We read, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. 
I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose or reveal to you what is to come. And verse 14 is such a key to understanding the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit in our midst. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall reveal it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and will reveal it to you. Now for years, as I've read this passage, I've always been a little bit stumped because in the context he is saying, listen, it's going to be to your advantage that I go away because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And then he follows it with here's, here's the advantage. Verse, verse 8, and, and I think we'll put that up on the board now or up on the screen now. I want you to look at these verses and think about why are they connected? Why are they connected to this idea of it's to your advantage? And if you look there at verse 8 or verse 7, he says, but I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage. This that's coming to you is better than me being with you. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then he immediately follows it with verses 8 through 11, which always stumped me just a little bit. And he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, as we look at this passage, what I'm really wanting you to think about is why is this such an advantage? Well, we are called in this world to represent him. And he says, in representing me, I want you to know something. I want you to understand something, that I'm going to send the Spirit, and he is going to convict the world. Now, most of us probably think we know what this means, and maybe we do, and maybe we don't. This word, elinko, convict, is not maybe what you think it is. When we think of convict, you know, if, if, if somebody says, uh, if I say, how are you doing? And they say, well, I'm, I'm a little bit convicted. I, uh, I overate last night and I, you know, I veered away from my diet and uh, I'm feeling a little convicted about that. What do they mean? Well, they mean I don't feel good about that. Or I feel a little bit embarrassed uh, with myself and etc. And there are a hundred illustrations we could give of convicted or we just kind of feel bad because we've disappointed ourselves or somebody else. Or we can take it a step further. It can mean convicted in terms of making someone feel 
guilty or ashamed or bringing conviction of sin. And most of the time when we read that, we think that's exactly what it means. But there's some strangeness to this verse, and I think that every one of us who are witnesses of Christ need to understand what verses 8 through 11 are really saying. This is actually quite crucial, and if we can get a hold of it, it will raise the level of our confidence in terms of bearing witness for Christ sevenfold. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean conviction on a personal level or a person's soul has been brought under conviction which leads them further to seek Christ. Now, other passages of Scripture teach that, and so I understand the interpretation. I understand why we think that of these verses. But is that what God is saying? And how, how fundamental is this? If this is the ministry of the Spirit, and to our advantage, don't we want to get a hold of it and know what it means? And so it's not like we often think. Years ago, by the way, it's been uh, about 40 years now, I made this commitment to the Lord, and I believe I've come close to fulfilling it, but I made this commitment to the Lord. Lord, when I stand in the pulpit or stand to teach your word, I want to have a clean heart. And there's a benefit to, to being a preacher, to being a teacher of the word. You know what it is? It, the fact that I have this discipline once, twice, three times a week to teach the Word of God, the, the blessing of it is that it helps me in the maintenance of my marriage. And what I mean by that is that I have this commitment to the Lord. Lord, I never want to stand before your people or stand in the pulpit when Kathy and I have had a conflict or some unresolved issue, and, and, and it's just unresolved, I never want to stand in the pulpit in that condition. And it happened, by the way. It happened one time. It happened on a Sunday morning. We'd had this conflict, and uh, Christians don't really fight. They just have lively, <laughs> lively discussions, you know. Anyway, we'd had this lively discussion, and it was unresolved. And the whole, you know what the whole problem was? Kathy wouldn't repent. <laughs> so, so I had to repent. And um, I had to get my heart right before I could stand in the pulpit and be before the Lord. And, um, but that's not the kind of conviction Jesus is speaking about here. It's so much bigger than that. The Holy Spirit has come into the world, and there is no limit to his presence. And did you ever really stop and think about it? Usually when we think about how well the Holy Spirit knows us as Christians, did you ever stop to think the Holy Spirit knows that non-Christian friend of yours just as well as he knows you? Right? He's God. He's omniscient. And so when you're sharing with somebody, and talking to them a little bit about the Lord and planting a little seed, you don't know what the Spirit of God's going to do in their life. He knows them through and through. And that gives you an advantage 
Because when you share the word or share the gospel or share some testimony of what Christ has been doing in your life, there's a resonation going on inside that person because the Holy Spirit has come into the world to convict the world concerning three things. And this conviction is based on these three evidences. So if I could put these verses in this way, and I understand that there are differing views on this, but I think the Holy Spirit has come into the world not only as the prosecutor of the world who brings conviction to the world in its sin and in its condition, but he does more than that. He not only is the prosecutor, but he's also the persuader. He's the one that persuades a person inside themselves of their need for Christ and of who Christ is. So look there at verse 8. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay, those three. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, here's where some confusion comes in. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Now, that one is not difficult to explain. Because ultimately, you'll notice sin is singular. And sin in the world, in all of its many forms and multicolored manifestation, from the slightest little white lie to the most horrendous evils and everything in between, sin permeates the world and the heart of man. But it ultimately manifests itself in a rejection of God and of Christ. And so this passage goes straight for the juggler and says, it's not the, it's not the stockpiling of your many little sins, but the whole of your sinful life can be summed up in this way. You've rejected Christ, and you've rejected God, and you've left him out of the equation, and you're living as though God doesn't exist. And so it's, it's a kind of hatred that manifests itself in complete indifference. You know, we've had children in preschool and in child care and so on, for whatever reason, every once in a while we get Henri little Johnny, every church needs a little freckle-faced Johnny, and Johnny acts out all the time. But he acts out because his dad is a long-haul truck driver and he hardly ever sees his dad and he kind of has a seething frustration over his missing dad all the time. And so he acts out in an angry way. And he would rather act out and be angry and be hateful in order to get some attention than to have no attention at all. The world in many ways can be like that. Sometimes it can be downright hateful towards the Lord and toward his word and towards his people. But most of the time, it's just a cold indifference. And when we come along and bear witness, that stirs something within them, and that's the work of the Spirit of God within them. So unbelief is understandable. But the next verse doesn't quite make sense, does it? He's going to convict the world concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. What is Jesus saying? 
He's going to convict the world. Of, you would think it would say, I will convict the world, or the Spirit of God will convict the world for its unrighteousness. But it doesn't say that. Convict the world of its righteousness. Now, there's a couple ways for understanding that. One would be, yeah, because its righteousness is inadequate. So we go to 17th chapter of Jeremiah, and we quote it all, that man's righteousness is as what? Filthy rags. Or we go to Matthew 5.20, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never see the kingdom of God. So that's one way of doing it. But I don't think that's what's here. Because we begin John's gospel with, he was in the world, and the world was created by him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own received him not, but to as many as received him. To those who believed in his name, to them he granted the right to become the children of God. So what is this really saying? Well, the Spirit of God convicts the world through our witness of their sin because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. Secondly, he convicts the world concerning righteousness because Jesus proved that he was the only righteous one who ever walked the earth. And he proved it by conquering the grave and death and rising alive forevermore and ascending to the right hand of God the Father, his perfect righteousness on display in a world where man is bankrupt of any righteousness that can possibly be commended to God. So now in heaven is a man representing us, and he is there in all of his perfect righteousness. Can I do something real, can we do a sideline real quick? The other day I was thinking about this and I've never thought of this before, you guys. I was thinking of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the perfection of who he is and the beautiful, impeccably pure, sinless nature that is his and how he took that perfect nature to the cross and to the horror of the cross and bled and died on that cross for us and then rose again from the dead and ascended to God's right hand. And as I was thinking about him, I've never done this before. When you read the book of Revelation, and I know many of you have, there's some passages that I just, they're so favorites of mine because these feet right here, you see these feet? By God's grace, this set of 11 Ten and a half now. For some reason, when you get older, you're, uh, they, they shrink. The ten and a half size shoes. These feet are one day going to stand amidst that crowd that John saw. And he said that the crowd that was there before the throne of God could not be numbered. It was an ocean of redeemed people. And someday, by the grace of God, these feet are going to stand there because of trust and faith in Jesus Christ, because he saved me. He's redeemed me. He's made me his own. And I've always thought about that scene from the standpoint of standing out there amidst the throng, worshiping the Lamb as we just got finished doing. Some of those verses are taken from that chapter. Worthy is the Lamb 
who was slain to receive glory and honor and power and riches and so on. I've always thought of it from standing in the crowd. But listen to me now. What must it be like knowing how good the heart of Jesus Christ is? What must it be like for him? Forget for a moment standing in the crowd looking up to the throne and seeing him. Forget that for a moment and come back around to the back side of the throne and see him looking out over this ocean of redeemed people knowing that every single one of them are there and could only be there because on earth he lived a perfect, matchless, holy life and took that holy life to the cross, died on that cross, and was buried and raised. And now from the throne of God, he looks out at this ocean of redeemed, saved, rescued people, knowing that it's his own righteousness that clothes them all. I cried the other day when I first thought of that. I just bawled as I thought about how beautiful he really is. And that by his great power and authority, he has rescued people from every tribe and tongue and, and people and nation. Set them before him. And he could, and I'm not trying to be irreverent, but he could look to the Father and say, Father, look how they're clothed. Look how they're clothed with my righteousness. So when the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin because they don't believe in me and to convict the world of righteousness because I go to the Father, this is the Holy Spirit teaching us about Christ, about who he is. And that's why later in the chapter we read, when he comes, he will glorify me and take of mine and reveal it to you. And then the third criteria for this convicting ministry of the Spirit. And you see what I mean, right? A moment ago I said it's bigger than just making you feel uneasy about your own sin. Are you following me now? It's a little bigger than that for the Holy Spirit to give you a conviction and understanding and to persuade you of the glory of Jesus Christ and who he is. And then the third one, you notice there in verse 11, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. What's it saying? What's that mean, you guys? The Spirit of God comes and he says, listen, the ruler, that one under whose spell the whole earth lives its life in the darkness of sin and rebellion, that ruler has already been judged. And we're told in Colossians, aren't we, is it 2, two verse 15, that on the cross Jesus triumphed over the principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them when he took his perfect life to the cross and laid it down to save his people. And so the earliest prophecy in all the Bible, 
chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, speaks of that seed, singular, that, would, that the woman would bear and how that seed would crush the serpent's head. And Christ has done that. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for the sinner who hears the gospel? Why would the Spirit bear witness? Well, because if you keep your, your allegiance to the evil one, if you keep in persisting in your unbelief and rejection of Christ, and if you keep living your life with this false sense of righteousness, which will never commend you to God, and if you do so, then know this, that the judgment that awaits the evil one that awaits Satan is going to be shared by you. If you're in allegiance with the evil one, you'll receive the judgment he receives. But you don't have to because Jesus Christ has given us what we need to overcome. And in the book of Revelation, we're told in the context of Satan's attacks on the church and the people of God and the persecution that occurs, you know what we're told? They overcame by two things, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, their faith in Christ. Has God the Holy Spirit ever opened your eyes like this? Has he ever shown you, brought conviction to your own heart and soul that Christ himself is everything. He is the way to God. And Acts 4 verse 12 says, there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Christ and Christ alone is the salvation of God. I love this passage, and I know, I, I hope I've helped to clarify it a little bit. It's not easy to come against maybe some thoughts we've had before of what this means, but I think it's when he says that the Holy Spirit will glorify me and take of mine and reveal it to you, that's really what he's saying in these verses. With regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment, he's really saying the Holy Spirit is casting the spotlight on Christ and all that he is and all that he's done on our behalf. Wow, just seems incredible to me. The story goes on there at the penitentiary. My schedule was extremely tight. So after we finished singing Amazing Grace, we said our goodbyes and began filing out. We were, uh, we were crowded into the caged area between the two massive gates. When we noticed one of the volunteers had stayed behind and was spending time with James Brewer, the young black man I told you of. He was there in his cell sitting with him. So I went to get the man because the warden could not operate the gates until all had left the block. I'm sorry, sir. We have, we have to leave and we have to go now. I said, please, looking nervously at my watch, 
knowing, uh, knowing that I had a plane that was standing waiting for me in a nearby airstrip to fly me to Indianapolis to meet with the governor. The volunteer, a short white man in his early 50s, was standing shoulder to shoulder with James Brewer. The prisoner was holding his Bible open while the older man appeared to be pointing out verses and reading the scriptures to him. Oh, yes, the, the, the volunteer looked up. Please, uh, just, just, just a few more minutes. Uh, this is so important, he said in a soft tone. No, I'm sorry, said the jailer uh, as he snapped. I can't keep the governor waiting. We must go, and we must go now. I understand, the man said, still speaking softly, but this is important, you see. And then he said these amazing words. He said, I am Judge Clement. I'm the judge who sentenced James to the death penalty. But now he's my brother. And we want a minute to pray together. I stood frozen in the cell doorway. It didn't matter who I kept waiting. Before me were two men. One was powerless, the other powerful. One was black, the other was white. One had been sentenced, the other... The, one had sentenced the man and the other heading for death. Anywhere other than the kingdom of God, that inmate might have killed that judge with his bare hands. After all, he'd have nothing to lose. And he goes on, now, now they were one in Christ. Their faces reflecting an indescribable expression of love as they stood there in the cell praying together. And though he could hardly speak on the way out of the prison, Judge Clement told me he had been praying for James Brewer ever since the day that he had sentenced him to execution four years prior. We do the loving. We do the listening. We do the witnessing. But the Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Is there anyone on earth who is without sin? Then we're all on death row. Until the grace of God rescues us. Let me finish with this. The story's been told of a new commander who was sent to an army fort on the American frontier. He soon was involved in a conference with an important Indian chief. Stay with me now. And so the day came for him to meet with his chief. And working through a translator, he nervously asked the chief a whole series of questions, and, and he, but he was surprised that the chief gave him no reply. 
And after the meeting, he said, the tr he, he asked the translator why he'd gotten no response from the chief. And the translator replied, that's what we call Indian time. Uh, he has enough respect for your questions to go away and think about them before answering them. Maybe we all need to practice more Indian time. This little poem says, his thoughts were slow, his words were few and never formed to glisten. But he was a joy to all of his friends. You should have heard him listen. In our witness, in our interactions with the unsaved, we need to listen to them. If we want to be used by the Holy Spirit to speak into their lives the gospel in a way that has a kind of scalpel effect that will bring real blessing and benefit, we've got to become good listeners. We're not out to just go out there and find somebody to be with the Bible. We need to care about them and listen well to what they're saying and what they've been through. Listening is not just passively done. It's an active participating experience in which you pay genuine attention to what the other person's saying. And here are a couple suggestions, and this is the last, as I said. And this is with the hope of being better witnesses for Christ. When you're speaking to someone, don't grab the conversation. You know how that goes. Yes, uh, now take myself, take me for example, which just canceled everything the person just told you. Don't let your gaze wander from the other person's face except momentarily. Validate the feelings, emotions of the other person. Yes, I, I, I see what you mean. Try not to interrupt them. Don't try to top the other person's story or make light of it with a joke. Don't criticize. Ask appropriate questions. Like, what happened next? Or, wow, how'd you get through that? And don't argue. Don't argue with them. Arguments don't do a whole lot. John Worth was just telling me after class that he was reading Proverbs 50, 15, verse 1. A, a gentle or soft answer turns away wrath. But what are we to be? Knowing that the Holy Spirit does all the heavy lifting... What are we to be? Well, 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet, with gentleness and reverence, and if I may add, with a listening ear, so that we can connect with them.
and seek to open their eyes and lead them out of darkness into light. Well, that's all I've got for this morning. I just wanted to kind of follow up on last week's time in the Word.